Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of animal cruelty, genocide, and death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. You don't believe in werewolves. Not really. Sure, we all enjoy a little teen wolf or wolfman now and again, but it's just an excuse to laugh at some dated special effects work, right? Which is why, when you see him, you refuse to believe it. A dog that walks on its hind legs. A monster that can hide in plain sight. You don't want to believe in him, even as he stares you down, the moonlight glinting off his fangs. You don't believe in the Michigan Dogman. But as he charges, you realize it doesn't matter. These have always been his woods. You are merely an interloper here. He doesn't believe in you. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, we take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth and share their stories. This episode is part of our Urban Legends Halloween special. Every day for the month of October, we're presenting our spooky spin on an urban legend, then diving into the history of the horror. Like it or not, each terrifying tale contains a grain of truth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today, we investigate the legend of one of the United States' most talked-about cryptids, prowling the forest of Wexford County in the northern part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. This bipedal canine creature has been sighted every 10 years since the late 19th century. Known for instilling terror in both lumberjacks and hikers, the sinister Dogman is a staple of the Michigan community. And though its hunting grounds are well known, its origin remains a mystery. A cryptid is a creature whose existence has been suggested but has never been proven. Famous creatures such as Bigfoot, the Chupacabra, Jackalopes, the Jersey Devil. But there are hundreds of small local legends that haunt the backwoods of the United States. The Dogman began as a local legend in northern Michigan, but the creature's influence has grown to include the entire state. He's got fan clubs, a rap song, and enough sightings to make his own playlist on YouTube. It's obvious why a man with the head of a dog would make an impression. But the Dogman has an even more distinctive feature. He appears once every 10 years, ever since his first sighting in 1887. The forest was dark, but the men knew exactly what they saw. 
its terrifying appearance was too outlandish for them to have simply made up. Julian loved his work. It made him feel like a giant slayer, strolling around the woods with his axe, shaping the forest itself as they chose which tree to bring down. While many former soldiers made their way out to California or the Great Plains following the Civil War, Michigan was as far as Julian needed to go to find a home. He and his partner Sam didn't even mind being alone all the time. It made the work easier. They could laugh and joke as much as they liked. There was no one around to complain. Most nights, Sam did the cooking, pushing beans about on top of a fire. Some salt meat, too, if they were lucky. Then they'd clean the pot with water from the nearby stream and curl up to sleep in their small canvas tent. It was standard issue from Julian's time in the Union Army, just tall enough to fit a small cot on either side of the entrance. True luxury, Sam joked. The noises began late one night. A clicking, then a clacking, as if something massive was moving through the woods. Julian did his best to remain unflappable. They were far from help, but the larger animals generally let them be. A black bear or two wandered through the camp every now and then, but they were more frightened of the lumberjacks than Julian and Sam were of them. Then the cries started. It was infrequently at first, soft, yet sudden enough to bleed into Julian's ears as if from a dream. But he could tell Sam heard it too. A wailing, screaming bark, somehow both child and monster. It happened again and again. The two men searched for each other in the darkness, wondering what to do. Were they supposed to help such a creature? Could they? Their lantern was no longer lit, but had been burning only a few hours ago. If it knew they were there, why did it not attack? It was getting closer. Julian could feel Sam's questioning gaze on him, but he didn't move a muscle, watching the walls of their tent ripple in the night air. Closer it came. Out of the corner of his eye, Julian could see Sam's hands were shaking. Sam hissed to his friend, begging him to think of something they could do before the monster was upon them. It was right outside the tent now, waiting. Sam opened his mouth to speak. Catching the movement, Julian finally tore his gaze away from the tent flap. His hand darted out to cover Sam's mouth. He glared at his companion praying his message was clear. Stay quiet. Sam nodded nervously, rocking back and forth a little in his cot. They waited, listening for the sounds of breathing or crying. As the night grew colder and exhaustion took them, they began to wonder if it had just been the wind. But when they emerged from the little tent the next morning, the pre-dawn light revealed devastation. Their campsite was torn to shreds. Pots were thrown aside, supplies crushed. Sam suggested it might be best to go back to town, find logging rights for a different patch of forest. But Julian was resolved to stay. 
He had been awake all night thinking about what they should do. He told Sam his plan the next day as they worked. They would wait for the creature. They would trap it or kill it. And then they would be rich and famous men. Sam was taken aback. He remarked that Julian had never seemed to be interested in status or riches. He seemed content with Sam's admittedly poorly made meals and their meager existence. Julian knew his partner was nervous, and he told him it would be all right. It would be just like hunting any other beast. That night, Julian insisted on leaving the lantern on. The light would attract the creature, he explained, while he and Sam waited in the bushes beside the tent. Sam squirmed uncomfortably on the wet ground muttering something about wasting oil. So they waited, and waited, and waited. In spite of himself, Julian was nearly falling asleep when he heard a snarl. A cry from Sam caused Julian's eyelids to fly open. He sprung up, his Winchester aimed squarely at the dark shape that was circling their empty tent. He got a shot off, and the creature started running. Julian followed, leaping over logs and rough terrain. Sam could only call after him, terrified. The dark shape stopped short, digging long, yellow claws into the wet ground. It reared up on its hind legs, and under the moonlight, Julian finally saw the thing he'd been chasing. A massive man covered in pitch-black fur, slick and oily, with some substance Julian did not recognize. Though the body moved like a person, the head was all monster. High pointed ears, long canine snout, saliva glistening on curved fangs. It was only then that Julian remembered he had a weapon. He got off a wild shot but the dogman barely seemed to notice. Julian stumbled backward, falling to the ground. Sure, this was the end. He tried to say his prayers one last time. Something grabbed him around the middle, dragging him back and away from the advancing shape. Sam yanked Julian to his feet, and they ran, and ran, and ran. Past the tent, past their horses and carts, all the way to the main road. They could hear the beast behind them at every step. Only when they reached town did the heavy breaths leave their ears. Sam suggested it was time to find another line of business. Julian agreed. But they held on to the logging rights. Perhaps they could keep the creature in the wilderness away from people. But cities grow. People explore. And so do monsters. Coming up, we see a werewolf adapted for the modern world, walking through the streets of Detroit in the rain. And he's hungry. Now back to the story. According to locals, the Michigan Dogman made his first appearance in 1887, attacking two lumberjacks as they went about their work in the forest surrounding Wexford County. The two men barely escaped with their lives and told anyone who would listen 
that those woods weren't hospitable to any right-thinking man. But five years went by, then five more. Then there were a few reports of an ominous dogman waiting at the borders of towns or beside fishing boats on Lake Michigan. Ten more years passed, followed by similar sightings. Another decade, another sighting. A wolf standing on his hind legs was seen outside a bar or by a river. He seemed to be getting closer, bit by bit. Cassie had left Wexford County as soon as she could. She'd never been a country girl, despite where she'd grown up. All she wanted was to live in the big city, surrounded by buildings and people, rather than dark trees and wild animals. Her lumberjack ancestors would not approve, but she did not care. Detroit wasn't exactly New York City in 1987, but it certainly wasn't the kind of place the so-called dogman her childhood friends liked to talk about would hang out. Small victories for a small-town girl. Cassie took a waitressing job and worked nights. She liked the patrons, mostly auto factory workers, but some musicians and reporters, too. She began a nocturnal existence, closing the diner out at 3 a.m. most nights. This also meant, unfortunately, that 3 a.m. was when she needed to do her grocery shopping. There was a mini-mart around a block from the diner that was always good in a pinch, so she planned to stop there on her way home. She'd always felt far more safe in the city than she had at home. It was comforting to be surrounded by so many people. But tonight was different. The rain was falling hard, and the streets were empty. Cassie couldn't help but be reminded of the forest walks she'd been dragged on by her friends and family members, as if the solitude of the woods meant anything anymore. It was all disappearing anyway. There was something behind her. Someone, she told herself. She wasn't in the backwoods anymore. There were no bears, no wolves. There was no such thing as monsters. Just garden variety creeps. She quickened her pace. Something was definitely following her, keeping pace as she began to practically run for the welcoming fluorescent light of the mini-mart. She stepped quickly into the store, clutching her chest as she moved further and further down the aisles, away from the darkness outside. She took too long deciding between little things like chips and salsas, any excuse to stay inside. Only when she'd heavily weighed every cookie choice and placed them in her basket did she approach the register. She tried to take solace in the comforting ding of the till as the clerk rang her up. He made small talk, but she couldn't focus. She was only watching the large glass windows, searching for shapes in the dark. There was no sign of her pursuer under the street lights or beyond them. She steeled her nerves and stepped back outside. The rain still pattered down. Cassie made for the other side of the street, letting out a sigh of relief, telling herself she was being silly and strange. Then, a shape stepped out in front of her. Her groceries fell to the wet sidewalk with a clatter and a crash. 
His dark frame blocked out the street lamp. His teeth poked out along his snarling mouth, but his eyes were the most frightening of all. The intelligence of a human, but the unspeakable cruelty, too. Cassie could practically feel the rage steaming off of him in the cold rain. There was nowhere for her to run. He was clearly faster, craftier. The city was supposed to be her environment. Why did he still have power here? Trembling, she asked the dogman what he wanted. As if in answer, he stepped closer. Cassie's breath hitched in her throat. A thought flashed through her mind. She saw herself running away, getting pounced on by this monstrous creature. Would having her throat torn out from behind be better or worse? And then it smiled and her legs made the decision for her. She turned and ran as fast as she could. Her mind went blank from fear. Her knees ached. Her world had dissolved into a dizzying series of sensations, panting, screaming, crying. She was running without direction or sense. She only wanted to flee. And then, the haze of fear lifted. Her gait slowed. She was alone on a street in Detroit. The dogman was nowhere to be seen. Gone. At least for the next 10 years. A powerful aura of fear seems to surround the Michigan Dogman every time it makes an appearance. During the first 1887 sighting of the Dogman, canine tracks were found adjacent to a group of horses who had mysteriously died in the night, allegedly of fright. Over the next century, a pattern began to emerge, a cluster of sightings every 10 years. The cryptid's range seemed to expand as well. While he'd initially only been seen in Wexford County, witnesses were appearing from all over the state. WCTM, a radio station in neighboring Traverse City, Michigan, recorded a retelling of the various dogman sightings as an April Fool's Day joke. But this only caused more witnesses to come forward. Their accounts were surprisingly similar. A massive black canine with the ability to walk on two legs. While there have been no fatalities or major physical injuries attributed to the creature, many witnesses report a significant wave of fear when in his presence, often before they even realize he's there. Some suggest that the dogman is not flesh and blood at all. They believe he's a spirit tied to a band of the Cheyenne tribe known as the Dog Soldiers, or Dogmen. The Dog Soldiers were a powerful military group that were directly targeted for extermination by the U.S. Army in the 1860s. Despite that, many white settlers of Michigan still feared potential conflicts with the displaced Native Americans. The rumors of these fearsome warriors likely informed the Dogman story, especially for the original two lumberjacks. These two men would likely have had a generational memory of clashes between the U.S. Army and the native tribes the settlers tried to displace. In his book, This Thing of Darkness, Michael Chemers explains that the word werewolf 
first appeared in an 11th century legal document from Denmark, which warns bishops that their spiritual flocks must be defended from the Wudfreka, or madly audacious, werewolf. This appears to be an expansion of the language in the Sermon of the Mount, in which Jesus warns his followers that they must beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. The danger, Chimra suggests, comes from the transformation, the sudden betrayal of a predator that had appeared to be one of the flock. This was clearly more than theological metaphor in various European cultures, and people were hunted, tried, and executed as werewolves as early as 1428 and as late as 1765. This created a cultural memory for the European settlers of Michigan. This fact cannot be ignored when talking about their fears of the Cheyenne and the other original occupiers of their land. It is no coincidence that the Dogman is almost always seen in remote wooded areas, the last wild places in a world that is swiftly becoming less and less green. He's been known to attack cars or approach lit houses, literally confronting the new occupiers of the Michigan wilderness. Many of the sightings of the Dogman focus on his wolf-like qualities, along with his massive size. But one incident, reported by 17-year-old Robert Fortney in 1938, deserves special mention. Fortney reported that he was standing beside Michigan's Muskegon River when a massive black dog approached him, raising itself to its hind legs. This would have been disturbing enough if not for the beast's piercing blue eyes, human and animal, all at once. Fortney panicked and fired his gun. The creature backed off. It took Fortney years to understand and accept what he saw. But of one fact, he was sure. I swear, he told a local radio station, that dog was smiling at me. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back tomorrow with a new urban legend, and on Thursday with a new haunted place. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Haunted Places for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Until tomorrow, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, was sound designed by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>